human trafficking, when I use that term, it's going to, underneath it, include any sort of adult or child slavery, whether that is uh, for sex, whether that is for labor, whether that means um, taken from one destination and moved to another, or, uh, or just moved around the, the country or the state that they're in. Okay, does that make sense? So it's, it's somebody who has been forced into something that they have no choice uh, in and they cannot escape on their own free will, pretty much. That's, that's what we're talking about. So I'm sitting in this conference and um, thinking about, okay, there are a lot of great organizations out there doing some great things fighting human trafficking in the world. But because of my personality, I like to look for places where... Uh, Whatever it is I'm looking at um, is, is rampant, but there's nothing, nothing going on to stop it and then go there. And so based off of what, what you learn when you study trafficking, Haiti seemed like just a trafficker's gold mine. You have the earthquake. It's the only fourth world country. I didn't know there was a category for that. It's the only fourth world country in the Western Hemisphere. The orphan crisis is huge, and they're right next to the Dominican Republic, which is a resort country. And so it just is the perfect scenario for trafficking. So I started asking around uh, different, different organizations, big organizations, asking them, what is happening? What are we, what's going on in, uh, in Haiti to fight, fight human trafficking? And they said, oh, nothing, nobody that we know of is on the ground doing this. We know it's going on. In fact, uh, and I, I think I mentioned it in that video, what we know is that before the earthquake, there was about 960 boys and girls trafficked from Haiti into the DR annually. The year following the earthquake, that number jumped to 8,000. And so we, be, we began to ask what's going on, and everyone kind of said the same thing. We don't know if there's anything going on. And we thought, surely there's got to be something going on in this country. And the kind of the way we've done things in general as a church uh, is that we haven't wanted to go start something new. Rather, we wanted to go partner with people who are already doing it and just help them in what they're doing. So we thought, well, let's, let's go. Let's, let's go to Haiti. Let's meet the locals on the ground. Let's find out uh, who's doing what. And then let's come up with a plan to help them fight human trafficking. So that's what this last trip was about. We showed up and uh, we, began to, we began to interview pastors. We began to ask pastors what was, what was going on. Um, and one pastor after another said, nothing. Nobody's doing, nobody's doing anything. We know what's happening. In fact, one, one orphan director that we talked to, he knew about, let me, let me uh, say this about Haiti so you can kind of get an idea of what the culture's like. There is slavery in Haiti that everybody knows about. They're called Restoviks. They're basically children who have been sold from their family with the hope that they would sell them to other family members to get a better education. Well, what's happening is poor families are taking them and they're using them for labor. And so they will work 12, 14 hours uh, a day with, with no food and, and no education. They were, they were aware of that, but they had no idea. They had no category for the idea that somebody would actually take a child and sell them for sex in another country. And so when we began to tell them about this, the expression, I mean, it was like 
they'd seen a ghost. They had no idea this existed. And so what we had hoped to find out, we were not finding out. And it looked like the problem was too massive because nobody was doing anything. In fact, one of our sources told us that the biggest organization in the, in the world that fights human trafficking moved into Haiti saying, we're going to do this. And after a couple months said, Mm-mm, we're out. For, for many reasons, infrastructure, government, and so on and so on. So we began to talk to one organization after another. And finally, we, we started getting some hope. And people were saying, we know what's going on. Nobody's doing anything, but we want to be part of the fight. We want to help in this. And so we were, we were really kind of discouraged because we thought, what in the world? Can a church the size of A&C, a grassroots nonprofit, and a bunch of people who don't even know it's happening do to do this, to, to fight this? And then we went to this one appointment. And it's... Something happens when a crisis that is so large takes on flesh and blood. You know, we can give you the number of orphans there are in the world, but when that orphan's yours and you hold them, when, when you know there are, there are millions of slaves in the world, that's one thing. But when you see one of them that has been rescued... And you do what Isaiah 58 says. And you don't look at them as people that are other than us. But you look at them as your own flesh and blood. All of the sudden, leaving the country because it's too big is not an option. Because somebody who is other than me, I will say a token prayer for. Might even give some money to. But I'll sleep well at night. But if that's my son... That's my daughter. I won't rest. I will sacrifice myself. I will, what Isaiah 58 says, exhaust myself, spend myself on their behalf. I will disadvantage myself for their good. And we were at this organization that we had finally found who were rescuing local Restaviks. And we asked them like we did everybody else before we leave, because they didn't have a plan either. But at least they had this, they had on their radar this idea of fighting slavery. Can we pray for you? They said, yeah, we'd love you to. But, but instead of pray for us, can you pray for our girls that we've rescued? And then one by one, that big problem became flesh and blood. And these girls came walking in the room and you saw the scars, the bruises on their arms, the cuts on their face. There's one girl we met who was 21 years old, but she had the body of an 11-year-old because she had been abused. She'd quit developing. And when we saw that, everything changed. And so we left Haiti, not with a lot of answers, but with a determination that that was our first trip of many and that we were going to continue to invest in fighting slavery by returning the dignity and the idea that children are made in the image of God back to that population. So you got Haiti, it's over there. And then we begin to think about, well, what's going on in our backyard? Because it's happening here. And lately, thanks to people like CNN, it's being focused on a lot more. 
but I wanted to show a clip of kind of what's really happening. This is, this is pretty raw, but here it is. I got started when I was 13. I was really young, and the people that fought me were people that were looking for, you know, child fetishes. There was like 15 of them in a room, and I was really scared. It cut with a knife to be able to penetrate me. I was on the fire. I was crying because I was scared, and he had sex with me, and that was my first time. I still had on my school uniform. Men who come here to abuse children in Cambodia have 99.9% of the time already abused children in their own country. We as a nation are going to have to sit back, take a deep breath, and realize, oh my God, this is in our neighborhoods, in our families, in our communities. It's right under our noses. We frequently see drugs and psychological brainwashing become part of the process of keeping them committed to the offender. actually fly into Atlanta, get on the internet and say, I want a boy who has no hair on his head, no hair anywhere, I want him to look like he's 13, I want him to be no taller than five foot two, order it, show up here, have sex, and be gone. The sexual exploitation of children has become a cottage industry, driven by the internet. It's very difficult for us to define the problem of child pornography to the American public because it's something we obviously can't show them. There are some of the acts that I couldn't even describe to you against children so young that no normal person could look at that without being disturbed. It ain't about sex. It just be about business, that's it. Once you get them to go the first time, then you've got a better chance of getting them to keep going. I was really nervous, and I was really scared. And he was holding his gun and shopping. Cannot arrest 11, 12, and 13-year-olds and charge them with prostitution. You cannot criminalize children. I think people view the prostitution like a victimless crime. Most of the girls that we come across nowadays are 13, 14, 15 years old. I know these girls didn't wake up one morning and say, I want to be a prostitute today. There are millions and millions of photos of children who are being sexually abused. Nobody knows who these children are. And it raises the question to us, are there that many pedophiles out there? Or is something else happening? 
what's, uh, what's worse than that is they tell us that 25% of all of that that happens in the U.S. happens right here in Texas. So here's what happens. We're first ignorant about human trafficking. We first don't even realize it exists. That many of us even pay for it and don't realize it with the things we buy. That we support it in the lifestyles we have and don't even know it. And then we begin to learn about it and we learn about this problem that is just massive. And then we go into what, what Brandon has said. We go into paralysis. Like, how the heck can we fight something like this? There's a story, well, actually a book in the Bible by a prophet named Isaiah. And he's speaking to God's people, equivalents of the church today. And he begins the book out, he begins the book by showing them what God holds against them. Um, when you read throughout the, the entire Old Testament, God holds, you, you will find God uh, accusing his people often. You know what he never accuses them of? Never accuses them of not growing fast enough. He doesn't accuse them of not having the right band. He doesn't accuse them of not having the right children's ministry, the right buildings. Of not making sure everything happens just the way it's supposed to happen in church. He doesn't accuse them of not going to church enough. Or giving enough. In fact, he accuses them for doing all of that at the neglect of the enslaved, the broken, the oppressed, the widow, and the orphan. And so Isaiah starts this letter out. And he's saying, you do all of that stuff, and you do it well, but it has began to stink to me. In fact, I hate it. Because you do it for the wrong reasons. The proof that you do it for the wrong reasons is that if you did it with the right heart, it would lead to a heart and to a life given towards justice. Not just talking about it. Not just learning about it. But to a life that is spent doing it. And so as he writes this, he comes to this point in his letter in the, in the first chapter in which he's going to give them a solution. Or he's going to tell them, if you are really in love with me, if you are really doing church the way you are supposed to, this is what it looks like and this is what it will lead to. This is what he says in verse 16 of chapter 1. He says, wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes, cease to do evil, and learn to do good. Now, it would be easy if he ended there. Because then I get to define good. You know, I don't see this movie. I don't do this. I don't, whatever. Whatever. However we wanted to play that game in, in Christian history. But he doesn't leave it there. He defines what it means to do good for them. That's what he says. He says, seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. And plead the widow's cause. This is what it means to be the people of God. If you are the people of God, if you recognize that you have been saved by grace, it will lead to it. It's almost like saying this is proof. We agree with Tim Keller. Tim Keller says this about what it means to seek justice. 
He says that the best way to do justice is live in a way that generates a strong community where human beings can flourish. Specifically, to do justice means to go to cultures, countries, communities, or neighborhoods where the fabric of wholeness has been torn and relentlessly worked to repair it. In other words, to be a person or community committed to restorative justice is to sacrificially give of yourself and resources to those in need to the point that we disadvantage our own selves for those living under the bonds of injustice. And so he tells us how to seek justice. He says, correct oppression. Correcting what he talks about when it comes to correct oppression isn't a one-time move. It is a tireless, exhausting commitment to end the systems. He doesn't stop at rescuing, but to end the systems that are causing those to be oppressed. He says, bring justice to the fatherless. That is actively defending, or literally it means to fight for, but not fight for from a distance, but fight for in such close proximity that that which is wounding them kind of wounds you. In fact, you fight so hard, you walk with a limp the rest of your life. Figuratively. To plead the case of the widow. The widow here is not just a woman who's lost her husband, though it includes that, but rather any woman who has been forsaken, cast aside, or neglected for whatever reason, thus causing the woman to be stuck in this cycle of oppression. Now, when I look at those three things, the oppressed, the fatherless, and the widow, do you know the three categories in which people are most vulnerable to human trafficking? They are those who have been oppressed, who have lost their families, or the woman who has been neglected. Isaiah tells God's people that if you are a people who have been saved by grace, it will result in lives dedicated to this type of work. So, again, that's theoretical and it leaves us big. So, A and C, as we, we have mentioned over the last few weeks, we have talked about how we can practically engage this fight. So, this is no longer just theory we talk about. This is no longer just a movie that we show. This is no longer information that we give you, though those things will continue. But we want to tangibly and actively sacrifice of ourselves to fight this. And through much prayer, this is, these are what we've, what we've decided on. They're actually in your bulletin. Uh, the, the first one, it says Freedom Sunday today. The first one is work in Haiti. When we were there, and we're talking to the pastors, and actually, here's what's interesting. So we could probably add Ethiopia here because Brandon and Jen and Trey and Ginny found this out too. You know you're starting at a good point when you have nationals or you have locals who say, we don't want you to do it for us. This is our country. We want to take responsibility and charge our people to take responsibility. So what you can do for us is you can train us to teach our people what it means to look at children as the image of God instead of just commodities. Well, we can do that. That's something we can, we can actually do for these people. 
one of the free Methodist pastors that we met with in, in Haiti, he said, he said to us, he said, our gospel does not go deep enough because it does not push us to social action. But from both Haiti and Ethiopia, they are convinced that if American pastors can come alongside them and train them what it means to restore dignity of a human back into their people, that it will create a culture change. So we're going to commit to that. We're going to also commit to something here that says, uh, you see it's called slave-free city. Here's what we know. I'll just be real. As long as there is poverty, as long as there is depravity, slavery is always going to fight against us. The slave-free city is the idea that we, and we have actually been charged by a couple organizations because they're watching what we're doing. We've been charged to create a model to fight human slavery here in central Texas that can be reproduced and led by the church in other major cities. The two things we're looking at uh, is to help in the area of rescue, to help create a safe place for those who have been rescued um, to, to live until their, their court case happens. Because here's how it works in central Texas, in all of Texas. When a domestic minor, here's, here's the deal, domestic minors have the least amount of resources available to them once they've been rescued. So once they've been rescued, here are the three options that we give them. Juvie, juvenile detention center, right? Which doesn't seem too fair. Um, or we uh, put them in an adult battered women's home, which doesn't really fit. Or we just put them in the foster care system with parents who have not been trained how to handle this. That's, that's the best we've got. So we went to the Central Texas Coalition Against Human Trafficking. And like we do with every other organization, we asked if you, had, if you had churches all over Central Texas to help you, what would it be? And they said to create a safe place these girls could feel secure as, as we're rehabilitating them. So in the next several months, we're going to be talking with them about what, what that looks like. Um, the other thing is, the one thing better than rescue, rescuing a victim from human trafficking, is preventing them from ever having to get into it. They did a case study in Oakland, California, and they said that 80% of all domestic minors who have been trafficked in Oakland, California come from the foster care system. So here's why. When a child ages out of foster care system, they have no place to call home. They're technically homeless. They go to the streets. They go to the streets with the mentality, number one, that they are not wanted and they are not appreciated and they're not loved. They go to the streets without community, without anyone to lean on. The national average is that within 48 hours of a teenager becoming hopeless, homeless, they will be approached by a trafficker. That number is relatively is much smaller in bigger cities like ours. So we have started working with, because of the amount of people that age out here in, here in Austin, we've started to work with different foster agencies to ask them, how can we tangibly create... Uh, a place of prevention for these girls when they age out. But not only that, that we could become their family and their community. And we could help motivate them to take advantage of the state-sponsored education that's available to them so that they can create a life for themselves that otherwise seems impossible. We're teaming up with Not For Sale to do other works throughout the world and, through, and with uh, international child care ministries um, to continue to support their work in fighting sex trafficking in Cambodia. So, this is a big task. But what a way for the church to lead. 
What a way for the world to do exactly what Peter says. They may hate you for the doctrines you preach. But live your lives in such a way, do good deeds in such a way that when the world looks in, they say, I want to be part of that. Let me, let me end with this blessing that I, that I wrote out. Uh, it's a Franciscan blessing. It says this. It says, may God bless us with discomfort and easy answers, half-truths, and superficial relationships so that we may live deep within our hearts. May God bless us with anger at injustice, oppression, and exploitation of people, so that we may work for justice, freedom, and peace. May God bless us with tears to shed for those who suffer pain, rejection, hunger, and war, so that we may reach out our hand to comfort them and to turn their pain into joy. And may God bless us with enough foolishness to believe that we can make a difference in the world so that we can do what others claim cannot be done, to bring justice and kindness to all our children and the poor. Let's pray.